0: everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Wrestling with the Future. I'm your host, Psychic Media, Angelo, joined tonight by my amazing co host, marvelous Mike the Movie Maker Messier.
1: Mike, glad to be here, Angelo. Really excited okay. about tonight's guest and hearing more from yourself.
0: Well, brother, we have an amazing guest tonight. This is actually part two with a gentleman who is a, much like you an actor, writer, director. He's produced a little bit. He's acting in film, television, and stage. And uh, he is the best-selling author of a book, When It Was Real, His Life in Pro Wrestling. Nikita Bresnikov, welcome to the show again, Nikki.
2: Thank you, my friends. I am so happy to be here. Everybody healthy? That's the key.
0: Yeah, we're all good here. Thank God, knock wood. Well,
2: we're, we're 3,000 miles apart, so that's as social distancing as you can get.
0: Exactly.
1: Mikey, how's things in Florida, brother? Uh, things in Florida are good. You know, I just took a drive to St. Augustine, Florida today. There's still a uh, hot dog place that's uh, still open for takeout food, Hazel's Hot Dogs in St. Augustine, in case anyone's interested. Um, but it's type type of place that if you were 10 years old, this would be like uh, Walt Disney World or something, you know, but I still enjoy it. And uh, it seems to be a pretty clean place, a clean operation. Yeah, and uh, I'm just happy to be here with you guys tonight.
0: Well, it's great to have everybody. I'll tell you what, um, New Jersey is all but shut down. So, just mm. in, in case uh, anybody wants to know, you you can't even get a hot dog in New Jersey right now. Wow, well, wow, well, yeah. it's right, it's 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 tough. Uh, but the, we are we're feeling very well. Thank God, you know, this is doing. We're very blessed here. Uh, we're doing very well. Mikey, Nikki, let's talk a little housekeeping. Um, a big bombshell yesterday, Nikita, from uh, the, the announcement of the WWE releasing more than 200 uh, full and part-time staff personnel, including most of which were wrestlers, some agents and producers, uh, some writers. Your thoughts on that?
2: Well, Caesar has spoken. And I'll tell you, it's a business. So I've heard this before. Johnny Valiant, when Johnny was managing with them years ago after his run as a tag team, he had bought a new house. And he said, you know, here I am. I went to military school with Vince. I knew him very well. And all of a sudden, I'm not on the booking sheets anymore. Nobody said, here's a two-week notice. Thanks for coming. It's just like, boom, you're done. And it was like, Wow, did that put him in a bad spot? So, you know, it's a kind of business. And even with the Hollywood, you know, you go do the audition. Nobody says anything to you. It's just like, okay, you were here and then you'd left in limbo. It's a lousy way to fly an airline, you know.
0: You know, Nikki, I have to tell you, though, um, tying into that, there's a lot of talk today. Uh, It's interesting when something of this magnitude happens people start talking about that which was you know untouchable before get a lot of wrestlers today one day removed talking about unionizing wow yeah mikey i know you've got some some feelings on that but nicky back in your day when in the 70s and 80s when you were at your you know the peak of your run uh, if something had like unionizing had been mentioned what would the consequences be, would have been like?
2: Well, Jesse Ventura can certainly certainly tell you about that because he tried it, and Vince just about cut his head off. It was like, "What are you trying to do, Ventura?" And it was like, "Hey, we deserve benefits. We deserve all you know, the medical retirement." It's like, "No way, private contractor." Hit the road, Jack, and. You know what it's all
1: about, the fuck.
0: Oh, the money,
1: sure, it's sure all about money. And Mikey, I'm, I'm th- into that, Mike. Exactly what Nikita said, because I think Jesse Ventura tells a story that it was before WrestleMania II, uh, New York, Chicago, and L.A., that Jesse raised the idea of a union to all the wrestlers, say, so, hey, guys, we got Vince right where we want him, we have to unionize now or we'll never get to do it. And according to Ventura, years later, when he sued the WWE uh, for videotape royalties, they put Hulk Hogan on the stand. And uh, according to Ventura, I'm sorry, according to Ventura, Vince McMahon was on the stand. And McMahon said that Hulk Hogan told Vince McMahon Jr. that Jesse Ventura was trying to unionize the boys. So uh, that being said, Ventura has had a grudge against Hulk Hogan for over 20 years now, I guess, because of that situation.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I I heard, that was kind of the story I heard, that Hulk put the kibosh on it, uh, and uh, and they never discussed it again, uh, to this day. Because uh, Well, Hulk- up until this day, this very day, in fact. Again, one day removed from more than 200 people, wrestlers, writers, producers, and agents being you know, furloughed and or given their release outright from WWE.
2: He had the same problem back around 96 after a lot of the talent was going to WCW. Chief, Strongbow, Kowalski, a lot of the, George Steele, a lot of the agents got the heave ho, you know, and a lot of other people, and it was just like, wow, nobody expected that, and it's like, hey, got to trim the fat. That's it. Well,
0: you know what, Nikki? let's talk about that cuz and that's a part of uh, WWE history a lot of people forget. You and I might remember that because uh, uh, strictly because of our age and having been around, but a lot of th- the top brass, you know, guys that ran the back, basically him, you know, Chief J Strongbow, uh, uh, one of the stalwarts. He was with that company for 30 years. Oh yeah, easily uh, or better, and just one day, goodbye, chief. Yep, you know, and that's how it was done.
2: Hey, yeah, hey, gone later this afternoon. That's it. Boom.
0: And it's funny how competition will bring out the best and worst in people. You know, rather you know, we've heard about Vince McMahon's competitive spirit, his his competitive nature, but it doesn't seem like he really likes to compete. He'd much rather control, it seems to me. And you know, never,
1: I, go ahead, Mikey. Go ahead. I just never heard it phrased that way before, and what, a, what I think he just nailed upon it, Angelo. Go ahead, Nikita. I just never heard that term before. That was great.
2: It's a lot like, because I've dealt with domestic violence through the years when I was in the police department, he knows there's a passion, and he knows he can dangle that carrot because we love doing what we do, and we're going to keep following it. Hollywood, the same bullshit. They do the same thing. You know, they know, hey, these chumps, they're going to line up at the door, man, because they're hungry for this. They want it. So, hey, we can make, yeah. them, sing. We can make them sing. So, sure, they use it. Us. They play us like the Stradivarius,
0: man. It seems really to me, and, and I would really love to hear both your guys' input on this, but it seems to me quite anticlimactic that. Here he is making a big pitch for WWE in Florida as an essential business, which, by the way, he was granted essential status, and he's allowed to run his program at the same time borrowing $18 million from WWE to start up the XFL Football League, but yet he's going to let go more than 200 people I just, is it me or is, am I missing something?
2: Oh, no, no, it's definitely stinkeroo. And, hey, look, you know the old saying, we've been around, Angelo, for a lot of years. If it looks like a turd, it smells like a turd. Don't taste it because it's a turd, okay? <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs>
0: right. it it's not a baby Ruth bar, Nikki. <laughs> well. well, I'll tell you what, guys, it's... uh. It's been a crazy week in wrestling. Uh, I, just, I hope that uh, for wrestling's sake, I hope that everything uh, levels itself out. Mikey, let me uh, officially introduce our guest. Nikita Bresnikov, as I said, is a writer, actor, director, producer. He is the author of the best-selling book, When It Was Real, His Life in Pro Wrestling. He is a member of the Screen Actors Guild and the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists. He is also a member of another esteemed organization, one I'm very proud of, the Cauliflower Alley Club. Yes. Sir. He has starred in more than a dozen to 15, 20 films, Nikki. Yeah.
2: Oh,
0: yeah. It. Uh, Insight, which is uh, just completed, Necroland, Highlander Dark Places. Vlad Dracul II, The Wrestler, The Captain's Fairy. The film that made you. I call it The Film That Made You. I might be wrong, but I, I think it made you. Brush With Danger. Yeah, you are. A cat- I love oh, that. Yes. It, yeah, it's a good movie. Really yes. good movie. Tears of the Fallen, 0.2 Horses, Fifth Clover. The list goes on and on. You Don't Know Me, uh, Avis Oswald, Private Eye, half Ass People, the details, I, I love it. So, and, some
2: of the because uh, they are just hysterical. They were great. Fun to work. And, <laughs> I love
0: it. Yeah, so you've been, you've been around. And not to mention the fact that during the 70s and 80s, you were quite active with your run with the World Wrestling Federation. And then, Nikki, Nikki, at the time, was it still called the Worldwide Wrestling Federation?
2: Well, one amendment. Now, I was still a kid in the 70s. I didn't start till the nineties, but I the book is about me as a fan and what that meant to us. The worldwide wrestling federation. And to go back in time, it actually started, it was nineteen sixty-three, when Luthez beat Buddy Rogers in Toronto. Uh, okay. And Tootsmont Vince Sr. And a guy named Fred Kohler from Chicago said, screw this. This guy's not going to draw. And they split. And that's when they went and developed the Worldwide Wrestling Federation. April 25th, they give Buddy Rogers the belt. They decided it April 11th, April 25th. I don't know. Supposedly, he had the heart attack is what the story goes. Some say Bruno just beat him with the backbreaker. But for whatever, you know, then Bruno beats him in 48 seconds. Boom. And runs the company. and. Without a doubt, he made the company. Yeah. So, you know, they kept that logo until it was around March of 79. They dropped the W. I, I'm sure they're sorry they did after all that bullshit with the World Wildlife Federation.
0: Yeah. But yeah.
2: That, maybe not because I don't think Vince wants to touch wrestling. Now he just wants to be sports entertainment. So maybe. Well,
0: and you know that, what, Nikki, you got a point there. You know, you mentioned, I mean, I want to tie into a couple things you just mentioned because they are. Uh, very topical to this show and very recent to this show. I just had uh, your friend uh, Davey O'Hannan on and J.J. Uh, uh-huh. Dillon, uh-huh. and we did a retrospective uh, remembering Bruno, and we talked about that Buddy Rogers match in, uh, in 63. At 48 seconds, you're absolutely right. It was a 48-second match. And according to J.J., and he put the kibosh on the rumor, he said, in fact, it was a shoot that Bruno went in and was told by by, uh, Tuchmont, forget about the malarkey, just go in and win. And he could do it. And he could do it, and he did. The gorilla Uh, put
2: put him in that over-the-shoulder backbreaker, and that was it. And I have a question for you, Nick. He might have had a heart attack when he was up on his shoulders.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was the thing that Buddy had claimed all the way up to the day that he had a heart attack. But the record shows something different. The record shows that Buddy Rogers was wrestling every night up until the championship match with Bruno. So I think, you know, I'm not calling, you know, he's dead now. And I knew Buddy in life and I would never dare call him a liar because in life he would have beat the shit out of me. Okay. um, But something doesn't sound right about the timeline. His timeline never sounded right to me.
2: Well, you know, uh, you, OK, you're saying to verify the heart attack. Got gotcha. you. Yeah, if, I'll tell you, you can play off of that. Because Backlund, in his book, he had trouble with Stan Hansen in that 1981 run. And the cage match was stinkeroo. And before the first two matches were good, but before he goes into the cage, in his book, Skolan says, go tear him up. And it was like, okay, we're going to teach this guy a lesson because he was trying to hold up the office. He wanted this, he wanted that. So it was like, okay, you know, turning on loose when you well, you got a Hellcat there, so it's like, okay, he did a pretty good job, boy.
0: Yeah, and yeah, I've heard, heard that story.
2: Said, hey, Bruno said he. I, I told Buddy Rogers, "Do your best," because I'm going to do mine, and then that was it. Whoosh! Black it's story. funny
0: that you say that because that's exactly verbatim, verbatim what David Johansson said. A direct quote, just, just exactly what you just said.
2: I love David. Do we
0: your beat. best because I'm going to do my best and I'm going to break your back. <laughs> Give it up. When you
2: look, you look somebody in the face and you tell them that. I, it, yeah. You can't get any more direct. It's like, hey, chump, I'm coming for you. So yeah, I
0: mean, if, if Bruno wanted to shoot on you and hurt you, he could. and He knew it. Yeah. Go
1: ahead, Mike. It makes me think of Shane Douglas, the franchise from ECW that says uh, everybody needs a yeah, but. You know, and in Buddy Rogers' case, it was, sure, Bruno beat me in 48 seconds by submission. Yeah, but I had a heart attack the week before. So I think it could be a thing where Buddy Rogers just kept that myth going uh, from, you know, from that time era in 1963 until he passed away because that was his excuse. Of course the guy beat me. I just had a heart attack, even though he knew that wasn't true. That was right. just something he held on to to keep his own prestige. And here we are 40, 50 years later talking about it. So there you yeah, go. Yeah, exactly.
0: Well, you know, they, they say, <laughs> it's funny, you know, Nikki, you know, a little bit about this being in the film business. They say that if the rumor is greater than the truth, print the rumor. Right.
2: <laughs> and as you, long as they're talking
0: about you, don't worry. Exactly. If you... well, speaking of, of talking, let's talk about Nikita Breznikov.
1: Okay. So let,
0: and I have to tell everybody listening, and Mike Messier, you might be especially interested in this. Nikita Bresnikov has, without question, bar none, the best wrestling archive you will ever see. He's got programs from virtually every arena in the country. He's got photos, behind-the-scenes stills. He he has a collection of posters and uh, and wrestling memorabilia that would make McMahon himself envious. So Nikki, I want to ask you about. uh, We started to talk a little bit when uh, you were on the show last with my my late co-host Jeff the Ref, Mm. and uh, that was in fact your interview with him was the last interview he ever did.
2: Oh my, Uh, he was a wonderful guy too.
0: Wow, he he was a a great guy, and you and I and Jeff started to talk a little bit, uh, and and of course, like we always do, we got sidetracked. But uh, we talked. We started to talk about your collection and your and how you began collecting magazines and pictures and memorabilia. So let let's get let's take the deep dive into that.
2: Well, with the magazines, of course, that would come from the arenas. Because that's all they really sold back then. Maybe a little glossy black and white picture and a magazine. That was our program. That was it. Now, in Baltimore, they would mail for free these four-page programs. I mean, today, you're not going to get much for them on the net. But you would, that's unheard of. To mail something like to go into that detail. It was really great, too. Yeah. So it worked. I don't think you needed it because, as I've said many times, wrestling was not cyclical back then. We would be buying tickets the month before the next month. We would be buying when the office box office opened at 6. We're buying for next month. We don't know what the card is, but we want to be there. So Exactly. <laughs> so that's all we had. And then around 1983, I got lucky. I'm reading through, I think it was Wrestling Review, one of the greatest magazines that was out there because yeah. it was truthful. Had lots of results. And I seen an advertisement for a guy selling VHS tapes. And it's like, wow, VHS tapes. So, man, that was very costly back then. Oh, God, sure. Started. And man, it grew and it grew and it grew. And in fact, that's how I met Nikolai because he was working a local show in Baltimore. I was still the police department. So I'm in uniform. Never met him before. He sees me. He says, hello, Sergeant. I said, hey, Nikolai. So he goes and changes. He comes out, going to sell the gimmick. So I go to talk to him. I said, hey, Nikolai, you know, I, I collect tapes. and trying to find some different ones that I don't have. He says, oh, I have nothing. But well, I would pay for it. I pay you whatever you I said, oh, you paid me nothing. I owe you, man. It'd be my honor. I'll make for you. No problem. So I did, and we became friends from that. But I'll tell you what. It was at the Hall of Fame ceremony. The night him and Sheik and all the other ones got inducted. So we're standing there with Vince talking. And he says, Vince, he got more more videotape than you got. I said, oh, man, <laughs> thanks a lot, Nicola. It's just the person I wanted to have here. Tell Vince <laughs> McMahon. You know. But I don't sell anything. But I, you know what? Sometimes I think my collection is better because uh, I, I just – some I got off of television that I take because I had a kid that I got a job at the uh, – connecticut office one time yeah he was a video guy and he worked for the nba and then when they went on strike he says man I, I need to make some money i said i'll tell you what i'll call up there you do great video work they maybe can use you so they did he got in and he got into the vault i said oh man, some people want to go to the playboy mansion i want to get <laughs> to that vault." you know so right it's a mess," he said. "People, it's kind of like an old blockbuster, you know. People didn't, yeah. It back, they put it somewhere else. Can't find it. It's like, man?
0: Yeah. Well, you know, it's what one of the things that that uh, you and Jeff got into talking about last time was the whole subculture of tape trading because because uh, Jeff was a tape trader. Yes, and uh, and it it wasn't until I had another guest on that I realized, man, there was a whole underground movement of tape traders. I don't know if I slept through it or I I had, you know, because I'm older than those guys were anyway. But I thought to myself, I missed out on something big. And I really felt like I had been, you know, deprived of some wrestling history.
2: It was uh, just a fantastic experience because in 1983 especially – I was getting the tapes as they were happening, you know, like maybe a couple of weeks later, a guy would tape Philadelphia and Madison Square Garden. And I'm going to the live shows in Baltimore and Washington at the Capital Center. It's like, man, that was one of the greatest times of my life. I couldn't. Yeah. It's like, I'm watching the video feeds and then I'm going to the live shows. I, I had all the angles covered. It was beautiful.
0: Yeah. Now, I got to tell you, Nick, and you're from Baltimore. We should tell yep. people. You're, oh,
2: yes.
0: Now, Mike, our friend Mike Messier here spent a lot of time around D.C. and Baltimore at the Cap Center and at the uh, Baltimore Civic Center. Now, Mikey, not- when, when you were coming up as a fan, were, was the uh, tape trading movement still uh, a thing? And did you get involved in it? And how did you come I- into the world of wrestling? Because you and I have talked a little bit about it, but we never really took the deep dive.
1: Well, I was pretty young, uh, maybe an embryo. But I was telling Nikita earlier today on Facebook that I think we actually went to the same card my very first card was in October of 1982 and Nikita knew the exact date. The headline match Angelo was a Texas death match. The eighth wonder of the world Andre the Giant versus the dreaded Texan Blackjack Mulligan. There was a world oh, wow. There was a world heavyweight title match between uh, the champion defending champion Bob Backlund using a hammerlock for about 30 minutes on the challenger Playboy Buddy Rose. There was a rose. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Buddy, Buddy Rose was the world title in a long match. Time. And uh, the first match I can remember, although I don't think it was the first match in the card, the first match I remember uh, SD Jones, special delivery Jones actually won a match. I want to say over Baron Mikhail Sekula or someone of that ilk. And they actually did a, a racist referee gimmick in the very first live match. I can remember, which really? in late, a race. The, the referee was clearly racist against S.D. Jones and insisted on checking his trunks several times during the match. And even after S.D. won with a headbutt, he insisted on checking S.D.'s trunks for a foreign object. And they were just, trust me, they were playing up a racist ref ref, a racist ref gimmick right there in the Capitol Center. And I was and very Nick, young. You watching. know about this.
2: They, yeah, he's correct, because they did it a couple of times in Philadelphia with him as well. And then SD would be like, you, you know, and the kid, you gave him fast count, me, you go like this. And it was like, <laughs> Dustin Feldman it's an whole time prep. They played along with it. Oh it was-
0: my God, they could never do that. these. Oh my God, are you kidding oh. me? The oh. backlash today, and it's funny how <laughs> certain things, and we, we look at ourselves as we've progressed, right? right? I think we've devolved back into the cave days but you could never get away with that now oh my god
2: no and that's why you have no heat today what the hell can you do
0: to draw heat well and we're going to talk about that because that's one of that's on my little crib notes actually as a matter of fact because you worked with a couple of guys that were heat seeking missiles and we're going to talk about them Very but good. I want speaking of heat I want to bring you to uh, chapter nine of your book. I'm going to read an excerpt. I want to talk about this. because I've heard this story firsthand. When the bell rang, Lou Albano charged the ring, only to be knocked down by Gurria, Tony Gurria. Albano was then interviewed by Vince McMahon and asked about the manager of the year contest. Albano could be heard yelling at Vince, don't push me, don't put your hands on me. Vince asked Albano to control himself and tried to conduct the interview. There seemed to be legitimate heat between those two. And this certainly seemed to be one of those times when Albano went a little off the rail, Vince ended the interview with, we hope to have an interview with Lou Albano in the future when he's a little bit more in control of his facilities. (laughs) Oh yes, absolutely. I've, actually heard that story firsthand. I want to ask you about it. My understanding, and, and you can elaborate in any which way you want, but my understanding was that Vince did not like Lou Albano because Lou was a holdover from Vince's father. And Vince was trying to create at that time his own for lack of a better word, niche, Uh, you know, to create his own identity. Right. Uh, And may conceivably have had at the time. But my understanding is that that heat with Vince McMahon and Lou Albano continued well into the 2000s and uh, up to the day uh, Albano passed away. If for whatever reason, uh, Lou Albano and Vince Jr., and I don't know the reason, uh, but they had heat with each other. And maybe you can elaborate on that. What Was it, in fact, because uh, you know, Vince was trying to break away from his father's crew?
2: I think it was more that Vince and Lou Albano were just two people And it happens in life. They did not like each other. A didn't like B and B didn't like A. And nobody was going to change. Even though Lou was the moneymaker. Because, you know, you put him in the ring with a Bruno or Chief or anybody. Man, you got a packed house. The the boys can take the night off. That's all you need is that match. Yeah. And Lou get his people over. So it's like even with that much drawing power to put the people into the arena, Ben still didn't like him. And you could see it a lot of times. Lou would grab him, and Vince would pull away, rough, even on. Yeah. His. And he said, it, give him that face and look, pal." One time he said, "Keep your hands off of me," you know. And Lou, yeah, story would be he would maybe have a little bit of extra juice during the day, apple juice, uh, yeah, you know, those kind of stuff, you know. And by vodka,
0: evening, vodka juice, yeah, and
2: <laughs> by the evening, you know, he's gone. He's out to lunch. So
0: oh, you- I heard that I, I heard that he uh, he liked his vodka and cranberry. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, it's funny, and I mentioned it in the book. Uh, it was Bruno's last taping that he was the color man for. And Albano was gone. He actually uh, Bruno's trying to do the interview at ringside and Lou he looks. You can see he's looking at, you don't know it obviously at home, but if you know the setup at Hamburg Fieldhouse, he's looking yeah. over at Vince and he's giving him all kinds of shit. He takes his shirt off and he throws it at him. Well, we don't know it, but then all of a sudden you see the shirt come flying back with a vengeance. So, you know, Albano heads over and you're hearing commotion. So then Vince comes over to take with Bruno and he's like, you know, <laughs> he just and then here comes Lou. He comes back. And he's in his face, and he's like, come on, hit me, hit me. And he's got his hands behind his back. And then Vince just, he turns the mic off, because in those days you had the on-off switch on the mic. He looks over at Bruno, and he just says, and you can see that on the, because this came out when they released that uh, All-Star Wrestling load not too long ago. I don't remember it in the original run, but I did get it then. It was like. Yeah, uh, he had his fill. You know, he was
0: done. And Hamburg Fieldhouse was where they did all of their television tapings at the time. The B show, yes. Yeah. yeah. The uh, now show. there were there were two uh of, as far as I remember there were two locations, Hamburg and Allentown. Yes, yes. Now, if, as far as I know, Nikki, it was Allentown uh that yeah. Where uh, the uh, chair shot Heard round the world took place Oh yeah Larry's abisco and Bruno that was Allentown Pennsylvania January
2: 22nd 1980 yes
0: And you remember the date
2: Oh yeah Uh, Definitely Man I still say the greatest angle Of all time and there were some beauties But man that Took us all by surprise
0: Well I was going to ask you Was there any heads up as to, did, did wrestling fans know what was coming at the time? I remember seeing it and just I and I sitting there in shock going, he hit Bruno. He hurt Bruno. The only
2: tip-off we got was the taping on January 2nd. And Larry starts saying, you know, he pulled away from Bruno during an interview. Bruno wanted to interview him and Larry pulls away. So it's like, all right, what's going on? So yeah. Vince goes up. It's the third hour, and he's like, "Okay, you know, Larry, uh, what's did something happen? Did you get struck in the throat? You didn't want?" It? He said, "No, nah. yeah." And then he goes into the spiel. I'm just tired of being in Bruno's shadow. I don't hate him, but you know, I, I gotta prove myself. So it was like, "Wow, this is unbelievable!" You know Let's yeah. go. So the next taping, that's when it all unfolds, and it was like, "Wow!" And yeah. you know, Bruno. Yeah, I think he took some legit shots on that because he was bleeding unmercifully.
0: Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Let me tell you something. Nicky, if he gigged himself, then he, then he gigged deep. Yeah. Because that blood was just pouring out. Yes. You could watch that match now and go, holy shit. He must have lost a quart of blood. Yeah. Um, Mike Messier. Yes. You're with me. Just want to yeah. make sure you're still awake. Okay. No,
1: I'm, I'm, uh, I, I, it made me think, Angela, as you guys were talking about that, that what you guys were hitting upon is the human emotions of the storytelling.
0: Thank you. And,
1: and you, you have the, the younger man, the protege, Larry Zabisco, who's in the shadow, so to speak, of his mentor, the 11-year champion, Bruno Martino, two title runs. And this young man, who's kind of like a son figure of, of sorts, wants yeah. to prove himself. And and, well, and that type of emotional storytelling, to some extent, has been lost, uh, or it's 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 losing ground.
0: Absolutely, and that's one of the reasons that I that I segued from where Nikki was leading me, and I and I led right into it because the title of his book, which we're going to plug a lot tonight, is called "When It Was Real." And and you and I, Nikki and and Mikey, we believed that that was a real deal. Yes. You know, we were emotionally invested, and and you know, Nikki, I talk a lot on the show about the lack of emotional investment. Where's the psychology? Where's the investment? Where's where's people's emotions in wrestling now? It's just it's high spot spot monkey after spot. It's just crazy. The book When It Was Real by Nikita Bresnikov is an inside look at the world we knew as professional wrestling. Yep, I got one sitting right next to me. (laughs) Now, see, uh, really, stop back for
2: a second, take a quick little jump. The thing with Zabisco, it wasn't just some like, uh, you know, they did a couple of tapings and got us all primed up for it. We were following this since 1974 when Larry hit the area. So yeah. there was legit, like I say, true fiction, there was legitimacy to it. It's like, okay, you know, he's been Bruno's protege. This just is a story. Hey, you know, we've been watching this all these years. And then it's like, what are we saying? This is
0: unbelievable. Yeah. And sure, it it's the, the jealous protege now wants to, you know, the student wants to beat the teacher.
2: It you made know? sense too, you know. It it made he like Backlund and my via, I never liked that much. Uh, I liked it more that uh, my via, when he turned on Strongbow, and I still say that had more heat factor than Backlund because they're saying, yeah. "Well, you know, he taught Backlund in college how to wrestle." It's like, "Get the hell out of here!" They didn't know each other in college. My Via was already ten years in the pros. What are you crazy? Oh, sure. So sure. it's like. That that was okay, But see, you know, now, Angelo, I'm not going to reveal too much. But, you know, you had an insight into the business with your family. Sure. People don't understand everything that was done on television was geared towards Madison Square Garden. That was Black Friday. Every month they had to break even or ahead or the whole company folded. Sure. Whatever angles were on television that Phil Zacco could use them. Great. And uh, up in Boston, that's great, but it was all geared to the garden. And it's just, that's a fact.
0: Well, you know, it's funny. We had that conversation uh, the other night with the chief Wahoo McDaniel's wife, Karen McDaniel. She was oh. a guest on the show. And actually, uh, Nikki, she's coming back Tuesday, I'm sorry, Wednesday night. Karen's right. coming back for her part two. But the one thing that she said was that Wahoo. Wahoo McDaniel looked at her and said, television is going to kill this business and it's going to hurt the guys. And she said, well, what do you mean? Wouldn't you, don't you want to be seen by more people? She, he said, yeah, but the problem is it's going to kill the arenas and that's where we make our money. And that's exactly what you and I are talking about now. That there's no house business, there's no arena business. You can't go and get a program now. Mm-hmm. You, it, if you'd be lucky, if they even had programs uh, at so-called house shows, uh, Mikey, when you went to the Baltimore Civic Center, yes, or you would go to the Cap Center, yep, and you bought your programs. Did you? Did you look at those as like? your souvenir for the night did that was that your your memory your treasure trove your memory
1: bank this is how far far my memory goes angelo i remember at the cap center especially they had a black and white program for two bucks and a color program for three bucks so the big mystery was which one were you going to buy the two buck one or the three buck one and that there was another little obscure thing. Well, I
0: know Nikita's got a lot of the color ones.
1: Well, they were they were both. <laughs> so Nick good. They spent were, some money. <laughs> they, you know, I think I think I, I feel bad that we haven't mentioned and maybe Nikita has some personal experiences. Uh, unfortunately, also this morning it was announced that Howard Finkel passed away. Oh yeah, I forgot to mention that. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. Yes, so we got to pay President our respects, Howard
0: Finkel, the voice of the WWE for. For many, many years, some 40 years, Howard was the voice of uh, not only World Wrestling Federation but World Wrestling Entertainment. Uh, sadly, uh, at, at age 69, we lost Howard Finkel today. Um, but, but tying into that, um, that was that was your memory for the night. You could look back on your program and go. Oh, I remember this is what happened during this match where right. you could go down the program and see, you know, where Bruno wrestled or where Andre was on the card or something like that. And they
1: had and, an and actual,
0: but gone,
1: but they had the yeah. actual card, the white piece of paper. That was the insert. Yeah. It was like on a thicker stock. And I mean, you see these cards everywhere. Evan Ginsburg posts them. He has a collection drawer oh, sure. and you would take your, your pen think, or your pencil and circle tell the winner. You.
0: Mike, you got to believe me when I tell you, Nikita's Trump's Evans every day. Uh-huh. And I love Evan. Evan's been on the show and Evan will be, will well, actually, is that, he's coming back on the show in May, as a matter of fact. But uh, Evan will be back with us. And yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to ask him about that. I'm going to say, you know what? I know a guy, Evan. That's got more
1: shit than you do. <laughs> I guess if I could ask if I could ask Nikita a question. You can um, ask him anything you want. Nikita, you, you and I chatted briefly on Facebook, and you you re, you made an illusion that you kind of lost some interest when Hulk Hogan became champion around 1984, January. I think it was 23rd right. or 24th of 84. Right. Was it something about the supposed rock and wrestling connection or the uh, WWE? Or WWF at the time taking over the territories or trying to buy out, put other companies out of business or getting away from guys like Bob Backlund, who'd have a 30 minute match. What because we're seeing now that a lot of fans have left in the last two or three years. Uh, What about 1984 specifically Hulk Hogan turned you off for a while?
2: Well, I actually addressed that in the book january twenty third nineteen eighty four is the day the music died. The format changed, and I do express that I'm not knocking hogan I'm not knocking anything or anybody, but things had to change. they did I mean our guys, like Strongbow and people like that, they were getting older. The format you know that was being shot in Hamburg and Allentown was going to change now, what a lot of people kind of lose sight of 1984 was also about the Sarge and the Iron Sheik that hot feud and Nikolai and the Iron Sheik as well as a tag team so it wasn't just Hogan but then it just became and Nikolai used to say this best he said you know uh people feel sorry for the heels now because Hogan killed everybody either you don't have no good matches. I said that's absolutely correct he's too damn big you know, yes. Bruno was uh, like 5'10", maybe 5'11". He, he was a gorilla. He was strong. Yes. But he looked like the underdog. Backland, he looked like a skinny kid, even though he was powerful. Pedro was smaller. You know, Superstar was a good-sized guy. He was a giant of a heel, but not over-giant like Hogan was. Right. So it's like Hogan, he had shit matches when it came to stud or... Oh, and, horrible. You know, it's good night, we're going to sleep, that's it. And how the hell yeah. is he going to work with Greg Valentine? He's too damn big. Valentine can't do what he used
0: and to And that's be. the problem. You know, Nikki, if you've seen one Hulk match, you've seen every Hulk match. Well, there you go. That's exactly you know, it. Yep. Run the rope. Hit the leg drop. Roll over. One, two, three. It's the same. It's the same match. you know. Yeah. This, Did you, start- you know, pump up the crowd. Hulk it up. Hulk it up. Hit the ropes. Leg drop. Roll over, pin one, two, three. That's that's it. That's every Hulk Hogan match.
2: But it was sure good to get the merchandise out there.
0: Well, see, the problem I had with Hogan back in the day, uh, for not only for the 84 run, but if you want to go earlier than that, when Fred Blassie introduced him, right. was that you saw something then that you hadn't seen up until recently, which was the company shoving a particular wrestler down your throat. Mm. They did that with Hulk. They, right. you know, they knew what they had. They knew that they had a, a cash ATM machine. Uh, you know, he was clearly money, uh, more as a, he, uh, more as a baby face, quite frankly, you know, they sold tons of belts, ice cream bars, uh, you know, Hulkamania Vitamins, you name it. They had his picture on everything. All right, And then that kind of went away a little bit, and they took a, a, another change in direction, you know, changed up his character a little bit, but they still shoved him every time they could get, shoved him down your throat. They did the same thing recently with Roman Reigns, who was never, ever going to be over. Mm. And I feel bad for the guy, and Mikey, you you know you know what I'm talking about. I do. You know, he uh, th- there was no way you were going to get this guy over. He's too good looking to be a heel. He's not. He's not believable as a heel, but as a baby face, they shit on him because he's big. And the problem is, they like their baby faces smaller in stature. Daniel mm. Bryan was. Uber over as a baby face. They shit on him as a as a heel because he just they didn't know what to do with him. And that's the problem. When you got a guy that's too big or too good looking or too small, what do you do? How do you how do you market him? Because Remember, Vince is all about marketing. Yeah. How do you market him to the masses? It's hard with those three names I mentioned, I mentioned deliberately because those were the three toughest guys to get over uh, in any, you know, in any given capacity. Now, remember. But the other thing, not to interrupt you, Nikki. but the other thing tying into what you had said was – the investment, the emotional investment. You couldn't invest yourself in Daniel Bryan or Roman Reigns or after a while, Hulk Hogan. I mean, how many times can you say, you know, oh, brother, you know, eat your vitamins and do your prayers and, and you know, do your sit-ups or whatever the fuck what you mean? say. Yeah, you, yeah. You know what I'm saying? But the, the point I'm trying to make is, You can only do that for so long with any given character before people go, all right, look, you know, that's enough.
2: You hit a a nice topic that Nikolai, I'm not going to tell you the long version of the story, but the bottom line was, and he said, I told this to Vince one time as I was finished up. Bullshit can get you to the top, but it cannot keep you there. And that was the <laughs> truth. That is the absolute truth.
0: Because Absolutely.
2: Look at Bruno. He didn't have to do anything. We no. loved him. He didn't have to jump on our backs and say, oh, take me home, love me. His present, nobody played music. All you did was see him coming down the aisle and whoosh, the whole place is gone, man. Yeah. And God help you if you hurt him because, wow, you got a hell to pay. And it was like, yeah, he didn't scream and holler on an interview. He came and spoke from the heart. And that's all we needed. And yeah. he didn't need to do any kind of vaudeville nonsense or anything like that. He was who he was. And we all loved him for it.
0: You know, and it's it's funny that you mentioned that because, uh you know, the match that he had with Ivan Koloff where, you know, he dropped the strap to Koloff. They said you could have heard a pin drop. In fact, Bruno tells the story that he thought something wrong, was wrong with his hearing because there was no noise in the arena. Yeah. And then when Arnold Skolin leaned down to say, are you okay? He could hear him as clear as, as day. Yeah. He didn't realize, walking back to the dressing room, the effect that he had on people. Mikey, you wanted to say something.
1: Nikita, I read in an online interview with you about your book that in your book you discuss that different parts of the same territory, East Coast, Northeast, WWWF or WWF, would have different types of main events. Madison Square Garden would have like the Bruno versus the top contender of the day. But if you went to Baltimore, you might see an African-American wrestler like Bobo Brazil featured in the main event. And if you were in the Capital Center, you might see a different type of main event. And the Nassau Coliseum, I believe what you were saying in your interview was they would tweak the main event a little bit because maybe they thought they were fans that would go to both Madison Square Garden and Nassau, so they didn't want to repeat the same main event. Can you explore that topic a little bit about how... Because when, when we think of sometimes we sometimes we think we read these, you know, pro wrestling illustrations from 1982 and we see very similar match results in those uh, arena reports that we call them. But from your experience as a top fan of the day, you were seeing a nuance to these main events that I had never thought of before. Can you talk about that?
2: Sure. Now, with Nassau, they would be like a B show to the Garden. Like Chief didn't get a main event with Superstar and the Garden. Tony Gurria didn't, Larry Zabisco didn't, but they got Nassau instead, which was great. Evan could tell you about that. And I'm, I'm going to be on Evan's show Saturday, by the way. I've known Evan for about 40 years. Good friend. We, oh,
0: we, I love Evan. He's, you know, a, he's a great friend of the show.
2: And I could tell you the story. We'll save that for later on in the show. But anyway, for what you're saying there, Mike, uh, yes, that's true. Now, Baltimore, we would get a main event, a special attraction and a tag match. And a couple of nice other matches, too. A lot of times the ladies would come in. That was good. But Bobo was so over in Baltimore. Now, in 1973, Pedro was starting to lose steam. So that whole summer, Bobo Brazil was main eventing Baltimore against Blassie, Tanaka, people like that. And it was like, OK, I think maybe they were testing things. Let's see how this is going to play out. And Bobo's drawing. Pedro's not. So it's like okay it's not just here, it's all over now, if they had uh, Bobo Brazil and Bruno a couple of times, it's like, oh man, that's it. that's just solid gold and in Superstar yeah. Billy Graham's run, Bobo Brazil got the only title shot with him in Baltimore on july sixteenth nineteen seventy seven and let me tell you it it was magic it, it was like, wow, the house was packed. we were just Bobo's gonna beat his ass you know this is gonna happen tonight then, then yeah he got him in the corner and it was like ah shit he can't believe it but we loved him he was like just a a class act somebody you could believe in and yeah put a guy like uh, sometimes you didn't even have a title match it would be like Bobo against Ernie Ladd one time in Baltimore
0: oh sure.
2: Well, he was United States champion, so let me correct that. So, yeah, okay, so you had that mm-hmm. title. But it wasn't always recognized throughout the territory, but it was like, okay, Bobo's defending the United States belt. But it yeah. was like, this is great. Bobo and Ernie Ladd, man, what a sure!
0: Nerd. And oh I my God,
2: yeah, too. He he was uh, just an incredible athlete.
0: And it's think? interesting about Bobo Brazil because he was a, a big guy. He was a six-foot Six 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 foot seven, but it's funny how a guy that big against somebody like superstar Billy Graham is the underdog. <laughs> Here he's playing um, the underdog, you know, going in as kind of like uh, almost like the um the the novice in, in so many ways, you know. But uh, a guy like superstar who you knew was you know ripped to shreds you know who had you know legit like 25 inch arms. And he was you know he was like 62 maybe 63. You know shorter than Bobo but yet Bobo's the underdog against a guy like that. And you just wanted to see Bobo give superstar his come up in just one time. Yes. You know?
2: Yes. And then
0: of course you know you mentioned Baltimore, you know Civic Center because that's the place where uh I heard people say superstar stole the title from Bruno. Right. You yeah. know, with his feet high up on the rope. And he, and I talked to Billy about that. Yeah. And he said, brother, I had to put my feet up there because everybody needed to see I was cheating to win.
1: <laughs> uh, you want to hear and I've,
0: I've known superstar Billy Graham for about 25 years. And I love Billy. And he's. He deserves better than what he's got right now. He's he's not in really good shape. I know. But uh, I'll tell but you the Yeah,
2: there's a there's a story too that April 30th, 1977 match. Why? Oh,
0: asked. let's go there. Sure, go ahead, Nikki.
2: It's it's in the book. Now, in Madison Square Garden, uh, Bruiser Brody had done it with Bruno. He pitting with the feet on the ropes. You know, they raise his hand, and then the judges at ringside said, no, 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 no. The referee missed it. This doesn't count. We're going to have to have a rematch. So they, okay, so Brody didn't win the belt. But Baltimore, once a decision is rendered by an official of the State Athletic Commission, it's final. You can't even yes. reverse it in court. So they killed, like Dominic DiNucci used to <laughs> say, they killed one bird with two stones. They, they <laughs> yeah. got uh, the title change. And, you know, Bruno could keep his, he looked his self-worth. He got cheated to win, Superstar did. And then, hey, Belt can change hands in Baltimore. So that gave everybody hope in all the other cities. It's not just Madison Square Garden. So it's like, wow, that's a perfect scenario. Everybody wins.
0: Oh, absolutely. You know, you mentioned Bruiser Brody there. Uh, just as a side note, Nikki. we just had Bruiser's wife on the show. Very good. Yeah, Barbara Goodish was did two hours with us. She's actually coming back. And uh but and it surprised me, and I'm gonna talk about this. It surprised me that Brody's run in WWF didn't last as as long as it should have. I thought he could have got another two or three years. Why do you think they cut his run short?
2: Well, uh, Timing is number one. Vitero was getting ready to come in, and he was going to have a good, pretty good run. Bruno was just coming back from the injury, so that was tough. It, it was a push for him. It really it was a tough situation. Yeah. I mean, who, what mortal among us could have come back from that kind of injury and carried the way he did? Because you could see, like, Bruno gets thrown into the corner after that neck breaking with that injury, and it's like, man... This has just got to go. All his teeth are got to be chattering with inside of him. It's too much. Yeah. And it was like, I, I think with Hansen was there, you know, so they were still playing. So Brody was there at the wrong time. And then they were trying to get Nikolai, his matches, and then accent. They were overloaded at that point. Wrong place yeah. at the wrong time.
0: Nikki, you mentioned your friendship with uh, Nikolai Volkov uh, actually began innocently enough over tape trading. How did you get involved with Nikolai, and what led you uh, into the business?
2: Well, when I finally got the tapes made for him, and I didn't sell them. Anybody from WWE spying, I didn't sell it. Hate, hate <laughs> you know, we became friends from that. So, of course, the pestering starts. I said, Nikolai, I'm going to be a wrestler. He said, no, 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 you have a good job, police department. Everybody get hurt. No, no, you, you could be the manager, I said. I don't want to be no stupid manager. I'm going to get in the ring. You know, he's like, no, no, no. We, listen, you know what's going on. We can make this work. So then we were doing a, it was a, the Czechoslovakian Slovak Festival. They called it Czech Slovak Festival. He and I were security that day. It was like old timers. We were just there to fulfill the insurance obligations. We're dancing with the old women, eating the food, have a good time. So. <laughs> We brainstormed that day how we were going to do this thing. We came up with the name. We come up with the, the whole gimmick. And it was like, hey, this works out pretty damn good. You know, I'm starting to like it, especially since I'm standing on the outside watching everybody get their ass beat. And I just <laughs> come in at the end and get a little slap here or there. And that's the end of it, you know? So, yeah. Wanted to throw me out of the ring. And I said, I can't do it. This damn coat is like a dress, I've got no control. Just hit me body slam, hit me, do whatever, but please don't throw me out of the ring. I'm gonna break my neck. This damn thing is like being in a straitjacket <laughs> jeez, so I loved it, you know, and then uh, we after a while, we go to the Indies, and I said, I'm bigger than a lot of these guys like. Yeah, yeah. What the heck? We become tag team. What the heck? Let's do it. I said, all right. So we would do that. But eighty percent, eighty five. percent I was managing, and I loved it. And
0: yeah, just Mikey. Did you ever see uh, Nikita's gimmick? I think I did. Yeah, and I guess I was going to ask you about. It was very these... imposing because you know, Nikki, you're a tall guy. Yes. And uh, and and the the uh, here to refer to coat went basically down to your feet yes and uh it looked very cumbersome what was it like to work in that gimmick night after night with Nikolai I'd
2: say I had one problem it was in an armory in New Jersey in Jersey City one night and uh Scott Franklin was there he was one of the producers along with Evan for the wrestler so we're putting the whole spread on the show because they didn't know what wrestling was about so we're giving them a good bird's eye view. I had already met with Aronofsky and Franklin and Ginsburg the year before. So it's like, all right, we're gonna show them these live shows. Now this is August the 26th and it you know hot as hell in New Jersey. And we're inside of a building. Now here I am I got this all this shit on that I'm supposed to be able to survive the Russian front end, right? <laughs> and then I'm going back and forth to the ring. They got me doing like five, six different run-ins and the dressing room was upstairs. So you had to go up like two, three flights of steps. Then all of a sudden the room is spinning. I'm like, what the hell is wrong? I don't, I don't feel good. And it's like, Oh shit. I'm dehydrated. This damn building is too hot. And I got this damn, so I'm drinking everything inside like Gatorade, <laughs> water, everything. So, Nikolai slapped me, and he's like, come on, come on, you'll be all right. I'm like, damn. take that shit off, you dehydrate. I said, oh, my God, I didn't even think about it, you know. But it, it saved me a lot of times, because especially in New York, you'd be doing things out there, and it was a Mother's Day one time. And I got on the mic, I said, Mother's Day to New York. All you New Yorkers, Mother's Day every day, because you're a bunch of mothers anyway. And then, the- <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: no. Mikey, yeah. go ahead, brother. I just, I mean, that was kind of, you answered my question before I asked it, which was, could just tell us, because I, I, I'm always surprised by wrestling fans who only go to the big show arenas. You got to go to these VFWs, these town halls, Webster Town Hall in Massachusetts, um, armories, places that can have four or 500 fans. And, and maybe can you tell us about the culture of some of these you know, big time wrestling or top row promotions, some of these promotions that will have two or three top guys, former WWF guys, former WCW guys, they bring them in, they they mingle them with their own homegrown talent. Because I'm always shocked that there's some fans that have never gone to a show like that. Can you tell them about it, Nikita?
2: Well, you know, people think that it's only the big arenas, but even in the heydays of the 70s, they would do that. Like like Jack Witchy's place out. North Attleboro you know
1: yeah Steve Feinberg always talks about it from Rhode Island yeah
2: yeah and they would be weekly, you know he would have yeah. a crowd but that was not a big venue. They would hit the high schools and chief one time told me there was a place in Caltown, New Jersey. It was a barn. he said yeah, look it to the ring, I'm stepping over cow shit but I had to get to the ring to do the show. He said, We yeah. got to pay the bills, you know, in Madison Square Gardens once At a And,
0: Mickey, I have to tell you, I know the place you're talking about. I've been there. Very it's good. it's about 20 minutes from my house. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> you know, it is. It's about 20 minutes away. <laughs>
2: places like that, but they would get them, you and know.
0: It, he's absolutely right. It's a shithole, but it's a great place to have a wrestling show. It really well, is, is. Because rumble. they're rowdy. Yep. And they're fired up and they're drinking. And that's what you want because no matter what you do, they're going to pop for you.
2: And the Rollerama in Brooklyn, they would have monthly oh shows. Oh my God. Sure. Athlete, Catholic Youth Center, all the way out in Pennsylvania, they would draw shit. But still, they would put the show on every month. And they um, would bring in talent.
1: Sure. And the um, thing is that these shows are, with this, the exception of right now with this uh, horrible virus, but we'll get to a point in our culture where we can go to shows like that again. And I'm just trying to get across to some of the younger fans that have only gone to a 20,000 seat arena, and you know, for a big WWE show that you gotta go and see the, the, the smaller town promotions because it's just so to me, it's always been more fun.
2: Absolutely. I hit the local arena here once in a while without a cause WAC, they put on a pretty good show and, Maybe they'll hold. My God, eighty people! It's a very small venue, but they fill up, and you're right there. You're catching the action. You can talk to the workers afterwards. Everything is beautiful, but it's a very good point, Mike. Support the local and Evan's message: support the indies. You know, it's exactly. like
0: exactly the yeah. big,
2: pie, and that's where everybody starts. So support them, just like minor league baseball. Go we'll see a minor league game when everything is back to normal. That's where you. Yeah. Gonna they're not there. now.
0: Now, Nikki, you know, you worked as a manager, but uh, we should also tell people and uh, that you've actually been involved in a couple of matches, yeah, yeah. So, uh, let's talk about the first time that you can recall being in the ring as a, an active participant in a match. Were you prepared for it? Were you scared shitless? What was, what was the mindset? Walk me through this.
2: No, I wasn't scared because I'll tell you the first thing that scared me. It was from managing the first night the, uh, we had a double shot that day. We were in Camden, New Jersey, beautiful Camden. Oh worked, God.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> the dumpster. Out, I, a lot of people's cars got broken into that day on the lot, but we were lucky we didn't. So we, then we yep. went to uh, Fairless Hills, Pennsylvania. We go flying up there and Jim Neidhart's going to work that match. Now he had a triple shot that day. So oh that God. motor sweating bullets, and it's like, man, it's 10 o'clock, hearts not here. So Nikolai's like, don't worry, he'd be here, he'd be here, just put, put on last. So then, sure enough, he shows up, so he's ripping his shit off, We're real quick, talk about what we're going to do. So we get in the ring, and it's like, you know, I'm trying to do, I'm antagonizing him, and he's looking at me with that face, and I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> I, I think he's going to kill me, you know? It's like, well, I'm looking at Nick and I'm like, hey, are you watching what's going on here? Because I think this son of a bitch really wants to do him again, you know? But he's just working me, you know? And it was like, and then working with Killer Kowalski. Oh, my God. Referee, that was a definite dream come true. I love the guy. Now, we did a, a series in Boston that I fly up on my own. Okay, at those days, thirty dollars to go from Baltimore to Boston. Nikolai's book. they paid his flight. But he said, "You want to go work? Uh, we go work for Walter." I said, "Oh hell, are you kidding? I'm there." So we go up there. Friday night we do Richard Byrne's show. We're faces, and uh, Walter saves me. Next day we do Walter show. where are heels. He beats the shit out of me, and Iron Mike Sharp too. Iron. Oh Mike, my God! God love him. Uh, God rest his soul. He was a beautiful human being, and with Mike. You know, he wanted to clobber you. And it's like, how hard can I hit you? How hard? I said, Mike, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Across the back, He's, don't kill me. Don't break me in half, you son of a bitch. You're twice my size, you know? He's like. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> he hits me with a bell. It's like, oh, man, this is great. I'm like, days I think I am did the hard way the first time.
0: you
2: know, <laughs> 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 You're not a beautiful guy there. But Walter was the first yeah. one. Hey, we do his show. I go back in the, you know, we're changing. He's like, hey, kid, come here, come here, come here. I said, yeah, Walter, what's up? He said, "Here, put this in your pocket and take care of Nikolai. I'm like, wow, Walter, right? He's like, go ahead, go ahead, get out of here, get out of here. So Nikolai on the way home, he says, you know, Walter did not make a lot of money. He didn't have to do that, but he's a beautiful person. It's like, I'll never forget him for that, man. of course, my parent, is Polish, so I guess he's Polish soul brother, so he took care of me, you know?
0: Yeah. You know, Nick, we talked earlier on about heat. You know, uh, there's hardly a person in the business at some point or another that doesn't have uh, heat with somebody. So you and I've never talked about this uh, because you're, you know, be honest, you're a really easygoing guy. You're just kind of like, well, you know, whatever, let's whatever you want to do. Have you ever had, and shoot straight with me, have you ever had like legit heat with somebody That you didn't know how to handle or?
2: Fans, yes. Never. Boys Boys were always great. You know, to me, I came from severely abused house. My father was a son of a bitch, alcoholic, beat the shit out of me, called me all kind of shit. Wrestling was my catharsis. It saved me. So I get into the business. They were good to me again. Nobody said, well, tough shit. Go learn on your own asshole. I don't care. Everybody was great. Because working with Nikolai, I'm in the main events with the top people, and nobody ever said, "What are you doing here?" They were like, "Okay, okay, you know, we'll get you through it. We'll do this. We'll do that." So it was beautiful. They were always good, but the fans who bought the gimmick, you know, now they want to kill you. I had one green beret one time, and working at ringside, and he's like, "You know, you son of a bitch." I'm gonna kill you. I'm gonna wait for you outside, and I'm gonna take care of you. I'm like, yeah, you know, kiss my ass, you phony son of a bitch, you you bullshit soldier. And because he's wearing his, you know, so I did too good. Sure enough, we're leaving, and there he is. I said,
0: Nikolai. Oh, he's waiting for you. you you you're a green beret. He's like, oh shit. I see you later. I said, you bastard.
2: So I said, hey, look, pal, I pull out my badge because I'm still with police department. I said, look, I'm one of you. It's all entertainment. He's
0: like, oh, really? I believed every you even talk different. I said, That's right. Really? He bought said, into it. Yeah. I said, Brother, is- you should be was- proud of yourself.
2: Well, I said, you know, you make me feel good because I did my job. But let's leave it at that. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't understand. That's fine. That's fine. It's like good for you, too. You defend the country. You know, before 9-11 We would do more for patriotism In 15 minutes than any bullshit Politician could dream up And, and Oh my course. god, sure Because people would do USA Had the flags, scream and holler It's like,
0: yeah. yeah, you
2: know, inside You're feeling good about it Even though on the outside, you're doing your, your shtick You know, and it's like, shtick. man, this is nice Well, Nick,
0: I, I attended a, An indie show here in New Jersey Where, uh, you know This, you know all-American, you know, baby face kind of, you know, boy-next-door kid, goes up against this uh, Arab sympathizer, okay. right? And he's wearing the uh, U.S. Army jacket and says that he pulled it off of a, you know, a dead uh, U.S. soldier and this kind of thing. I thought, you know, it, I understand you want to get heat, but is there a point... And I think you understand where I'm going with this. Is there a point where you cross the line? Yeah. Yeah. Cheap
2: heat is, you know, you don't need that. Like the play off of somebody's uh, like demise or somebody that like they did with Jr. And when he came back from the Bell's palsy and Vince gets out there and it's like, come on, you know, that's not necessary. That's a bit too far. And you don't draw heat with it. You draw. You're an asshole. You know, this to make me hate you. It makes me say, "I don't want to look at you, son of a <laughs> bitch," and I'm not going to buy tickets and I'm not going to support you, whatever your program is.
0: Mike, I got a question for you and uh, and Nikki. Sure. Um, both of you are uh, published authors, uh, which means you're by nature writers. What are your thoughts on writers in wrestling? Sure, Nikki.
1: You start with you, Nicky, or start, start with you, me,
2: Nikki. either way. All right. all right, I'll tell you what, I got lucky. <clears throat> Scott Teal took me under his wing because my vernacular was all police-oriented. I gave him over 500 pages. Now, the project was mine, without a doubt, coming from my heart. But Scott was able to mold everything and not lose the content. And a guy like Scott Teal, who's done over 200 books, you know, when you, you get to know quality. And that guy is quality, without a doubt. Sure. A lot of good writers out there that have done their work. You know, like Mick Foley does his book. He's Mick Foley could just write like a remake of the telephone book with his name, and they'll all buy it. You know, it's like, yeah, oh, whatever. So that's great for him. But when people that really didn't have a big name write and people buy that book, and there's going to be a forum coming up on May the 2nd. And the third, for a lot of different writers that have put books out there, Scott so, Teal, Scott I'm going to be on it, Evan, and a couple other guys, and uh, <clears throat> Kenny Casanova is part of it. He's actually started it.
0: Oh, sure. And it, you,
2: you should support this project bec- and these, all of these projects because people are writing from the heart, and we get it, and we get what you get. And it's kind of like we're connecting on this level now. So when you pick up something where somebody's just trying to sell you whatever to make a million dollars. Scott Thiel told me going in, he said, we're not going to make a lot of money. And if you want to make a lot of money, you got the wrong guy. I do this for the passion. So I said, oh, yeah. Scott, that sounds good. That, that's exact. I want to give back. Just like I described, they were there for me. And they still are. So I'm giving back. So that's great.
0: Yeah. Mikey.
1: Well, I guess I interpreted the question differently. I, I thought you were asking more about like the WWE creative writing team. When you, you bar- can,
0: you can tie that in
1: absolutely, of course. I guess, I guess, for me, when I think about writers, you know, and, and look, Vince Russo and I are, are quite friendly, and and I dare say friends. But I I do feel that one thing that Vince Russo might have pushed a little bit too for, far for my personal taste as a wrestling fan is that somehow writers have become characters on camera. And if you look at WCW in 99 and 2000 and 2001, uh, Vince Russo and Ed Ferrara and Ed Ferrara making fun of Jim Ross with the Oklahoma horrible character with yeah. the facial paralysis. If you're, it's like you're breaking the fourth wall, you're getting too meta, uh, to make people want to watch this stuff because when you start in the WWE about a year ago, released a video of their creative writing team on YouTube and everybody hated the writers because the writers were saying, I never watched WWE before I worked here. And that just didn't make wrestling fans like myself. And yeah. I've had a job interview for the WWE creative writing team back in 2007. Well, so isn't
0: he- that in its, uh, in its of itself uh, problematic, you would think?
1: Well, you would think so, but apparently, like I said, I get very angry about it, the angry wrestling fan, when Vince McMahon shows sometimes that it feels like he's become ashamed of being in the wrestling business, of which he makes his money. Well, he is. Well, when he puts his his, uh, fortune from pro wrestling, is how he's made his bread and butter, and he mislabels it as a sports entertainment and he takes that money and he puts it into this fledgling football league, which has gone out of business twice now in, yeah. in 20 years. And the World Bodybuilding Federation that he was going to make a star out of Gary Stridham instead of Bret Hart or Davy Boy Smith. You get to a point with Vince where you're like, what's wrong with this guy? He does something well, that's very good, you, you which is promote you wrestling.
0: What, you, you basically said what's wrong with it. And. Something Nikita referred to earlier, he he is ashamed to be in the wrestling business. Yeah, Mikey, let me remind you. On the last show, you said it yourself.
1: Remember, in
0: the movie Beyond the Mat, we make movies, pal.
1: Yeah, we make movies, pal. So he he, I the WWE it, they did a really good job with WrestleMania, I believe, in providing entertainment for two nights. But the last week has been really bad for WWE. Uh, unfortunately the Fink passed away. That's got nothing to do with, with anything that Vince did, but this whole thing with the money firing, all these people, uh, getting Florida to let them do shows. It's, it's going to leave a mark, so to speak uh, on everybody. Uh, so I do get riled up. Now you asked me about wrestling and writing. All I can say is I really wanted to be a part of that WWE creative writing team. And I wrote a storyline That was a nine-month storyline by myself. I didn't have a team of writers sitting around. Of course, nobody's ever seen that storyline because I wasn't hired. But I know creatively I'm capable of writing better than what they've done for the last 20 years. So that's why, for me personally, it's upsetting to watch inferior wrestling on WWE because I know that I could write better than what they do.
0: Mike, your high school kid could write better than what they do.
1: Please. Yeah, but I I could write better than a high school kid too.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you take, I, I mean, being facetious, but I'm kind of being serious. If you take the average 17, 18 year old wrestling fan fresh out of high school, give him a pen and paper and say, write me a storyline for three months involving these wrestlers. I'll bet you, you'd have a compelling storyline for three months.
1: Who knows? I mean, Angelo, you might be right. I mean, I've, I've seen other fans. It can't hurt. I mean, look at what you've got now. Nikki. <laughs> that, 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 I mean, look, go ahead.
0: Nikita, please look at what we got.
2: I think the, the last good storyline, and this was a comedy, was Stone Cold and Vince. You watch every week to see what bullshit Stone Cold would do to him. You laugh your ass off. But you wanted to see Vince get... Whatever, he dumped the cement in his vehicle and yeah. got the beer truck. You wanted to see him get it. I don't think there's been anything in my mind since then. And I, I'm not a very close follower. But you look back into the days when it was real. You didn't have to give anybody a script. You gave them a finish. And that was exactly. it. Exactly, And it was like, if you make, see, Nikolai had another saying. You make it too complicated, people can't follow it. So Exactly. It's like, Spiros Arian angle, he got stabbed over that. People believed it. Oh, god, sure. I mean, it was like wow. The, he, and that was another one you didn't see it coming, but then they started to bring it up. That story, I and mean, you know, him and Chief, his first match, he lost because Kowalski puts the uh, the gimmick in his mask and gonna, gonna headbutt him. Chief hits the ring. And Arion's disqualified, and Arion's screaming and hollering, "Hey, it cost me the first loss!" And so it's like, and they're a sure. team. And then from there, it just went to the point where they're wrestling the Valiants. Boom, they collide. Then Arion gets pissed, busting with the chair. Bruno comes in, he rips Bruno's shirt. They all attack him. It's like, oh yeah. my god! I mean, you oh,
0: need sure. to sure
2: on security to get him and Blassie in and out of the buildings. It's like
0: I'm telling you,
2: you can yeah, I, I actually. Out- until your fingers bleed, you ain't going to match that. Because we believed it and we cared.
0: Well, Fred Blassie told me a story uh, when I met him at the, in fact, it was at the Cauliflower Alley Club reunion here in New Jersey in 99. Uh, told me a story about uh, how he came out to his car, which was on fire. <laughs> he set his car on fire. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Mikey, yeah. what, was, what what's the oh he, uh,
1: Mikey yeah? Mikey is holding up a picture. I to show this picture to Nikita because I showed it the other day, but Nikita uh, wasn't on the show. Yeah,
0: I well, don't know pull if that's it in back focus. a little bit, Mikey. Pull it back a little bit. That's it. There you go. That's uh, Nikolai and Iron Sheik.
2: It looks like Danny Davis is the ref. Uh,
1: Pro- yeah, Providence, 1985. They were fighting Rotundo and Wyndham in a Texas tornado match.
2: Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah,
1: uh, You know, I did get to meet Nikolai Volkov at the 2013 New England Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, and Nikolai was really a gentleman, and uh, we had mentioned Larry Zbysko earlier. I actually got to induct Larry Zbysko into the New England Hall of Fame in 2010, and uh, Zbysko and I have the same birthday of December 5th, Uh, but I I did want to send a shout-out to Joe Bruin, who runs that Hall of Fame, because he had brought Howard Finkel in to be the guest MC of the Hall of Fame inductions several times. And then they had a surprise induction for Howard himself a couple of years ago. And uh, I don't know, Nikita, I did want to ask you about your acting career because we talked so much about your wrestling and your authorship, but I was, uh, I have to mention Highlander because uh, as a Highlander fan, You have a part of the Highlander universe and a good buddy of mine, Jamie reborn out in Texas loves Highlander. He's written fan fiction for Highlander, uh, on his own time, just for his own enjoyment. Can you talk to us about the Highlander experience a little bit? Yeah. i gonna tell you, it's so
2: weird. When I did that, I played Vlad Dracul. All right. Now I was the third generation father and the kid that was playing my son His father just passed away from the coronavirus, and he's only 35. So because I stayed in touch with the fact, because I had to slap him. That was the one I slapped. And it was like, uh, so the family is there, you know, and they say, you know, let him have it. I'm like, no, no, I don't have to do that. I know know how to do it make it look good. But then I became friends with them, and uh, so I've been following that. But to, to work on that, a lot of that was done with green screen. It was a magician named Andrew Modini. I mean, he is just a fantastic – he knows what to do with the camera work and the editing. That's always the key to these projects is the editing. I loved it, you know, because, I got again, I'm wearing this long red uh, tunic, you know, and it was like we're doing the swords and all that stuff. And I didn't do sword fighting, but uh, I'm carrying it, so it was neat. I enjoyed – for me, that was a little bit different because I'm always a cop or some kind of heel, bad guy, bullshit, you know, and it's like – it's a little bit different. I like it because I had an argument with uh, when we did Brush With Danger. We had dialogue coach. And she, Jeannie Hackett, big Hollywood uh, out in L.A., she's a big theater person. So she said, well, Nikita, what's your theater experience? I said, oh, professional wrestling, Jeannie. She says, okay. <laughs> "No Shakespeare. What are you talking about? I said, Jeannie, before the live crowd. We get one take, Jake, that's it. You can't screw it up or you ruined the whole thing. I said, and we're not on the microphone the whole time. you got to, you're pantomiming what's happening. People are got to get it. She didn't want to believe it. So I said, okay, whatever. Got
0: your Have right. you ever, ha, that, that's a great segue. Have you ever had to defend that beyond just this uh, dialect coach? Oh, sure. Sure. You know, all through
2: when I was a fan even. You know, people didn't want to acknowledge it, but you'd see people at the arenas, Mike, like the Capitol Center in Baltimore. It's like, hey, that guy's I know him from work, not police department. Back when I was in a a working for I was a clerk for a bond company. It's like there's so and so she's here. It's like, wow. But you never hear him talk about it when they hear you discussing it with other people. They kind of just walk off into the corner. But it's like. It was almost like a pornography kind of situation, you know, people <laughs> so did like closet fans.
1: Yeah. You know, that's like, they used yeah. to use that term closet, uh, closeted wrestling fans. That used to be a term.
2: Yeah. Now the, the Hulk Hogan thing brought MTV in and all that other stuff. And then it was like, whoosh, we got washed aside and this new group come in and then it, all of a sudden it's in vogue and people like it, but. Yeah, back in those days, no, I talked about it. I always did, because my mother would say, he's a goof, he watches that wrestling, and it's like, yeah, I do, and I love it, you know? What the hell? You, you're the goof, because you're the one that gives me the shit all the time, and right. sends, <laughs> your husband, i me to beat the hell out of it. You're the goof, because that's she's like the grand wizard, and my father would be whoever, and then just annihilate me, but this, that was another story. But yeah, you know, with people at they didn't want to acknowledge it. They didn't want to get rest. And like, somebody's always got to expose wrestling. It's like, well, who's next Santa Claus, the Easter. Right. I mean, cut it out, buddy.
1: Enjoy it. Nikita, do you remember the sportscaster, George Michael on channel four oh, news? I
2: love George Michael from channel George,
1: four. George Michael had a show that got nationally syndicated called the sports machine. And yeah. for whatever reason, George Michael was the first mainstream guy in the beltway in the early eighties, to champion professional wrestling. And he would have highlights of the matches from the Capitol center, WWF. And then he would venture to Baltimore for the NWA. And he would put clips from the Crockett cup 87 on the channel four news. And he would have highlights and Jim Vance, yeah. the straight newsman would always uh, piss on the wrestling and George. And he would debate about it back and forth.
0: Well, I'll tell you what, uh, I have a little insight into that. Sure. Lay it on George Michael was a Philadelphia DJ at WFIL Radio, and I grew up listening to him. George was a huge wrestling fan, and he would be seen every month at the Philadelphia Arena and at the Philadelphia Spectrum when the Spectrum became the place to go. George was a huge wrestling fan. He loved it. He, he He was honored to be called a mark. Back in the time when nobody knew what the word Mark meant, except the insiders, which gave you some insight that he was, in fact, inside. Uh, And every opportunity he got, he championed the cause of wrestling. When uh, when George became a national figure with the uh, sports machine. It was just a natural fit for him because to him it was a sport. We consider it a sport. I do
2: have a whole disc with a lot of his clips from what I was saving on VHS. And then I put it onto a disc, but Jim Vance one night <laughs> did have his own little, uh, I, I guess the station was getting too much heat about it. So Jim Vance, he had a, a commentary and he said, look, I got nothing against wrestling fans, but I, this just isn't my thing. And I'm not going to back off on it. I'm not going to support it it's this it's that and it's like okay we get it now jim vance was a cool guy in his own right mm-hmm. but now george michael did on well, it was my son's birthday if you can believe it the night he was not his birthday the day he was born august the 15th of 1980 i went to the capitol center <laughs> uh, george was the guest ring announcer and it was funny because uh Backlund lost to George Steele. It was 81, not, not 80, 81. So he loses by disqualification because Steele's using the gimmick of threat the match. And Backlund gets it. And of course, he's caught. I mean, that's just automatic burned a house down. Yeah. So, George, I don't know why he said this, but he gets the microphone and he says, Ladies and gentlemen, let's let Bob Backlund know how you feel about him. He's had a rough night. Come on, let's go And Backlund <laughs> looked at him. He was talking to Skull and he draws his fist back and he's gonna nail him. He's like, What is this son of a bitch? You know, Get the hell is Right? So that was good because the following Monday, George says, Fans, I'm done with Bob Backlund. Bob Backlund fans, don't call me! I don't want to
0: hear
2: it! Shows he the clip, and then Jim Vance is like, Ah, I know why you're saying that now. Wow! So then they had Bob do an apology during the promos. He just, uh, you know, lost control.
0: That's just funny. Lost
2: the match and, you know, I didn't mean that. I apologize. And then George Michael was happy again that he's putting Backlund over. So, you know. That's
0: great. But well, he- I'll tell what? you what. It's been, a, it's been a great show tonight. I really enjoyed it. Nikki, you've got a treasure to check out the book, When It Was Re- My Life in Wrestling, by Nikita Bresnikov. Please. Yes. Uh, co-authored by Scott Teal. Uh, you know, we really got to work on getting Scott on the show. I, I got to find a way to get him on the show. I would love to talk to that guy. I really I would.
2: Him. He would love us.
0: I appreciate it. <laughs> if you can, I'll tell you what, Nicky, if you can work on that for me, that'd be great. I will. I appreciate it. Mikey, you have anything to promote, plug, uh, social media, movies? What do you got?
1: You know, Mikey Messier, angry wrestling fan on YouTube. I gave my Howard Finkel tribute today. I had my thoughts on um, the WWE releases video last night. MikeMessier.com has just released The Impeccable, my uh, 23-minute short film. That's won three awards so far. Including the best supporting actress for my friend Nakia Zachariah, a beautiful pageant winner from Europe. Yeah. Uh, so people can check out MikeMessier.com and just dig around in there. And, and the t shirt, uh, when Amazon merch will allow me to start selling these t shirts again, uh, you know, there's going to be several Mike Messier t shirts on Amazon available for all the Mike Messier fans out there.
0: And let me read that shirt Hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard that's I right that.
1: that's life lessons with mikey messier uh, distributed by wrestling with the future is picking up a lot of attention so i appreciate that yes, Angela, is. people are getting into it
0: yep and i i should say that uh vince russo and i don't have much in common except mike messier we share him both <laughs> we share well, him both we're gonna have to work on getting vince on the show
1: we do v- vince vince talks so much on his own realm network that i think sometimes oh my
0: god you know, i know
1: but but he did have a nice tribute to the Fink today, and uh, you know, for all these WWE talents that have been furloughed or lost their positions, uh, let's keep it in perspective. These are all, for the most part, young, athletic people. They'll all get on their feet. But for someone like the Fink that we lost uh, a little more yeah. you know, permanently, we got to put our feelers out to his family.
0: Yeah, that was a loss. He was
2: one of the greatest wrestling fans of all time, without a
0: doubt. Oh my God! Sure. Yeah. Nikki, plug your uh, your website, uh, your uh, appearances, films, um, uh, book signings—anything you got coming up? Plug it all, brother.
2: You can find me on Facebook; is the best connection, and I'll take you in, especially if you are commonly connected with somebody else, because you got to be careful who you take in. But yeah, uh, you know, working on a couple of projects—we'll see. Everything's just gotten. Like, like a leaf in the wind right now Nobody knows what they're doing anymore Until we all get the go That we're free again and we can get out there But don't forget when it was real People if you can Great
0: if, book uh, when it was real My life in wrestling by Nikita Breznikov and also if you want A really good Introduction to Nikita Breznikov as an actor You gotta check out Brush with Danger
2: Great, great. movie Great yes. great movie Yes, Livia Chong, she, she's an absolute gem. She's an up-and-coming female Asian director. Does it, Her own acting, too, she's good. But I think she's going to stick more with the directing. And uh, she is a hard worker, and she strives for perfection. So, yeah. Well, gentlemen,
0: her. stay with me while I say goodbye to everybody. Uh, we will see you the next time on Wrestling with the Future. We've got, coming up, we've got a big week coming up. Karen McDaniel will be with us again on uh, April the uh, 22nd. We've got Tony Villano from the International Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame. will be with on t- Tuesday, the 21st. J.J. McGuire, the man who wrote all that great theme music, will be back with us on April 23rd to, to wrap out the, uh, the month of April for us. Then in May, we've got not one but two superstars, megastars in the world of pro wrestling. May 5th, the one and only Magnum TA will be with us. And on May 7th, Leapin' Lanny Poffo, the genius, will join us to talk about his life and career. On May 12th, for his first of two appearances, Flying Brian Pillman Jr., will join us. Uh, I have a tribute on May 13th that's going to be an interesting show. We're going to have Brandon Savage and Randy Hogan. They are two professional wrestler lookalikes. Brandon Savage, of course, is a Macho Man Savage lookalike, and he is the gentleman who starred in and did all the vignettes for Dark Side of the Ring, the Macho Man Savage episode, and Randy Hogan is a professional Hulk Hogan lookalike, and you'd be hard-pressed to tell the two apart. Hmm. On May 14th, we're going to talk about wrestling training with Danny Cage, the owner of the world-famous Monster Factory that was started by my dear friend Larry Sharp. On May 19th, the venerable Doc Diamond will discuss his 40 years in pro wrestling. Big smile from Nikita. I love Doc. And on May the 21st, and this is why I wanted you to stick around, Nikki, because after we go off the air, I'm going to hit you up for something. On May 21st, we're doing a special roundtable, a deep dive investigation into the death of Dino Bravo. Mm. and filling out the month of May, flying Brian Jr. for his second of two appearances, and that's a very bold month. That's a busy, busy month. Uh, And then, just to let people know, we're going to start off the month of June, and I'm only going to give you a couple, but we're going to start the month of June with Handsome Jimmy, the Boogie Woogie Man, Handsome Jimmy Valiant will be with us on June the 2nd. And that's all I'm telling you about June so far. So if that's not enough, well, you're going to have to (laughs) dig a little deeper. (laughs) For Nikita Brezhnikov, for Mike the Movie Maker Messier, I'm Psychic Angelo. Join us again. Take care, everybody. Good night. Happy wrestling.